There's some controversy over whether the COVID-19 virus was the result of a lab accident, but sometimes great things result from lab accidents. What miracle drug of the 20th century was a lab accident? And what famous prime minister tried out for a spot on an American baseball team? Answers to those and other questions coming up in this edition of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Well, speaking of perspective, Marcia, we've just finished our eighth week of being together oh. every waking hour. Oh, my God. Every Isn't hour. that just fabulous? It is. Oh is it? Has, it? has it been fabulous for Did you? Did you get my wine today, Bob? What? <laughs> I need You need, I need your wine. More. I need I know. Something. I know it's medicinal. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. We'll, we'll get some. Okay. All right. All right, then let's continue. All right. Well, now let's uh, talk about some topical things. My first question deals with a lab accident. Now, uh-huh. we've heard the rumors that maybe this COVID-19 virus started in a lab in uh, China and possibly was an accident. In that Hunan market area? Yes. Well, sometimes great things result from laboratory accidents. <laughs> Like your birth. <laughs> what? Hey, come on. <laughs> Sorry. No, really. What miracle drug of the 20th century was a result of a lab accident? Uh, what? Miracle drug of the 20th century. I'll just say, because penicillin. That's exactly right. Oh, well, for God's sakes. <laughs> yeah. Penicillin. It changed the course of medicine. Well, wait, was that, who was that that did that? That was Alexander Fleming. Oh, okay. So what happened was, you'll never know what you find back at work after two weeks vacation, (laughs) okay? So he left on a two weeks vacation. He came back in 1928, and he was in his lab. He'd been researching the flu, and he just came back from that vacation, and he noticed a mold of fungus was growing in one of his bacteria cultures. Apparently, he hadn't sealed it properly. Uh Uh-huh. In fact, some histories actually call him a sloppy lab technician. So air was getting into it? Is that the Yeah, it was open, and something came in, and so his experiment was contaminated. It was spoiled. But he didn't throw it away, and I'll tell you why in a second. Okay, (laughs) He looked at that culture, and he noticed a clear ring around the fungus, and that indicated whatever the fungus was, it was toxic to that Staphylococcus bacteria that was in the dish. Uh So he isolated that mold. He found it was from the genus Penicillin, and he named his substance Penicillin, and that was that. I say that was that because for a good 10 years, his discovery just laid there. It was in medical literature, but nobody was working on it. He even gave up on it in 1931. But let me tell you something else. I told you he didn't throw it away, and do you know why? No. (laughs) Because at one point he had shed a tear. (laughs) Now, this is true. Six years before... He discovered penicillin. He discovered the mild antibiotic properties of human tears because one of his tears accidentally dripped into a bacterial sample he was working on. Jeez. So why was he crying? I don't know. That's, that's, <laughs> well, that's the working. mystery of this. <laughs> anyway, so he knew even mistakes had scientific value. So when he discovered his lab mistake in 1928, he didn't throw it away. He looked at it, and penicillin was born. 
and he and three other people won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine Jeez. in 1945. That's crazy. That's wonderful crazy. Yeah, because that did, you know, that changed the course of medicine. You Kept could, a lot of us alive. Oh, yeah. Pneumonia and uh, meningitis and gonorrhea, syphilis, all kinds of things were basically cured because of penicillin. Yeah. So you never know. A lab accident may not necessarily be a bad thing. <laughs> now, you have an interesting question there about... Oh, do I? Do you know the answer? Uh, and I think I know the answer to that. Oh. What famous prime minister asked for and got a tryout as a pitcher for an American baseball team? Was it Fidel Castro? Well, maybe, yes. <laughs> How did you know that? I, that's a famous uh, fact, and I knew that Fidel Castro tried out, and I thought, God, why didn't we let him be on that baseball Wait, team? You know, you know, history could have changed yes. a whole lot. Kennedy would have had a lot better record if that had happened. And but... Maybe a famous baseball team he would have liked, you know, as having this, uh, <laughs> well, this the, Cuban uh, pitcher it. On wasn't it, the know? Yankees. It was the Washington Senators. Oh, God, he would have been in Washington, D.C. <laughs> I know. <laughs> With Kennedy of at the same time. That's hilarious. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> he was a college student in Havana, and he wrote to the Washington Senators Baseball Club asking permission to have a tryout as a left-handed pitcher. The Senators sent a scout to Cuba to observe him in action. Joe Gambria, the scout, returned to report that Castro was hopeless as a major league prospect. <laughs> oh, but he made a great dictator. <laughs> <laughs> oh, golly. All right. All right. What else you got, Bobby? Okay. All right. Here we are. Now, here we are, Marsha. We're in a state of national emergency as we have this coronavirus mm -hmm. that's ravaging the country. Back in 1933, Franklin Roosevelt proclaimed a state of national emergency to help the nation out of the Depression. When did that state of emergency end? I think you'll be surprised, but tell me. <laughs> You just love me to get this wrong. This okay, is one of those, if you're going to do something, make sure you end it. You know, yes. Well, don't I'll forget say, about it. I'll say it ended with World War II. That would be the right answer for most people. But, but no. no. <laughs> Why are you smiling? Because it's, it's amazing how long this thing lasted. It went beyond World War II? Officially, we were under that state of emergency for 45 years. Well, that <laughs> because not until September 14, 1978, did Congress finally get around to ending that legislation. But not only FDR's state of national emergency, but the states of emergency declared by Harry Truman in 1950 and Richard Nixon in 1970 and 71. So... Those things where you don't put a sunset on this, it's yeah, they gonna, just keep going. it'll just keep going. It's a charming oversight. <laughs> just <laughs> ridiculous. Okay. All right. Geography, Marcia. How many places are there in the United States where four states meet in one point? How many places? One. Where is it? Southwest. And what are the states? <laughs> I got two, man. Well, you got one. You Texas. To, to to indicate where they are. Texas. No. Okay. No, scratch that. Okay. The four Colorado. corners. Colorado. The four corners. Yeah, Colorado. Arizona. Yeah. Two more states. Colorado and Arizona. What are the other two states that meet together in that four corners point? Uh, hello. Okay. I'm hello. Oklahoma. No. 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 New Mexico. Yes. And? And 
What is that other one? I'm asking you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to get me, trick me yeah, into telling you. I am. Yeah. All right. Here, it's called Four Corners yeah. in the Southwest. You're right about that. It's where Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, Utah. and Arizona meet. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Okay, now, just so you know, unfortunately, (laughs) the Salt Lake City's Deseret News newspaper says information compiled from several federal agencies indicates residents in that area may have been exposed to more long-term radiation than any other group in the nation. From what? Well, because of atomic testing, uranium ore deposits and residue left over from... Well, you got Nevada nearby. Yeah, that's... So, congratulations oh. for being in Four Corners. Oh, you're glowing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, here we go. Ready? Mm-hmm. How did the donkey and elephant become symbols for the Democrats and Republicans, Bob? I believe that was done through editorial cartoons. I think oh. they were... Was there? Was yeah. it Thomas Nast? Is that who did it? Well, for God's sakes, how do you know that? Well, Thomas Nast did Uncle Sam and a number of other things. He was a famous cartoonist in the 19th century in New York City and Tammany Hall. So he came up with these symbols? Yep. In uh, Harper's Weekly, Thomas Nast, political cartoonist. What do you, where do you get this stuff, Bob? I just, I've kept this in my, this is the useless information that's <laughs> that, been in my that, brain that for years. That is Bob Smith. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. Okay. You've done good. <laughs> okay. You know, we talk about, uh, we obviously are in a time of emergency when the coronavirus, the COVID-19 is the plague of our time. What were the 10 plagues of Egypt according to the Bible? How, you're not going to ask me to name 10. Give me... 10. No, I'm not going to give you 10. Well, give me a few. Give me... Okay. Give me a couple. Give you two or three. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. We're waiting. The plague? No. What are the plagues? The oh. 10 plagues of Egypt? <laughs> They had, I uh, have to name the plagues, was it? I said several. I'll give you one. Give me one. Water becomes blood. The heck is that? That's one of the plagues, supposedly, that happened. Water becomes blood? Frogs is another plague. God's sakes. Locusts? Uh, fire? Yeah, locusts and fire. Ha- okay. Hail and fire. Okay, I got two. Uh, locusts, fire, and... Uh, what do people have in their hair? Lice. Lice. Uh and swarms of bees, flies, locusts, cattle disease, flies, uh, sores yeah. or boils. Ah, that sounds like you last weekend. I remember. Are, here they are. <laughs> they are. These are the ten plagues of Egypt. Water becomes blood. Frogs, lice, swarms or flies, cattle disease, sores or boils, hail and fire, locusts, darkness, and the slaying of the Egyptian firstborn. Give me the corona. Yeah. yeah. Jeez. (laughs) This is all from from the book of Exodus. A lot of dark stuff in that one. Thank you, Bob, for cheering me up. Okay. Oh, here's one you'll like. Okay. All right. When the Gemini 9 spacecraft carrying Eugene Cernan and Thomas Stafford splashed down in the Atlantic Ocean in 1966, Mm -hmm. the recovery ship USS Wasp was only how far away? One of those, it was like 100 or 200 miles away. I think it was a long way away. But this time it was like four miles away? No. Are you ready for this? Yeah. When they splashed down, it was 669 yards away. Holy cow, that's incredible. That's right. In a mile, there's uh, over 1,700 yards. So this is less than a half a mile. It's it's just like... So it's within eyesight. Yeah. That must have been amazing to it's see something. It's yards away. To that, with that precision to splash down. What if it had landed on top of Well, it? I was going to say it could have <laughs> crashed into it. That, that would have been bad, wouldn't it? That would have been a bad thing. Ooh. Very bad. Very bad. Okay. 
Very interesting, though. Do you remember Perry Mason novels when you were growing up? My, my mom used to read the Earl Stanley Gardner novels. I never read those. I watched Perry Mason, but I never read Perry Mason. What's the unusual thing about uh, a lot of those titles? What was in those titles? A certain thing was in every Is one of those like titles. the case of? Case of what? There was something that was common to 30 or 40 of these books. A common what? <laughs> Let me just tell you, okay? Yeah. From 1933 to 1965, a significant number of the original Perry Mason novels used animals in their titles. So there was the case of the howling dog, the case of the caretaker's cat, yeah. the case of the lame canary. Oh, really? Oh, well, see, basically, I got the answer right I, I in like the how case you, of. I like how you think well, yeah, that. It's... The case of the careless kitten, the case of the drowning the duck. The careless kitten. Case of the fan <laughs> dancer's horse. There's one. <laughs> The Grinning Gorilla, the Mythological Monkeys, the Waylaid no. Wolf. Wow. Oh, no, I'm not done yet. No? The Drowsy Mosquito. That's my favorite. <laughs> the Case of the Drowsy Mosquito. And here's a funny one. The Case of the Perjured Parrots. <laughs> there are nearly 80 Perry Mason novels written by Earl Stanley Gardner, and those were a few of them that well, they all had animals in their I titles. I give myself 90% on that answer. Of but... course you do. <laughs> Okay. Wow, but still, that is the drowsy mosquito. I'll have to, it's hard to top that. Okay. All right, here, Bob, I know how you love bees. Bees love me. That's the problem. <laughs> They're a little too much. And yeah, I almost died from bee stings once. That's what Marcia's joking about today. How nice of you. <laughs> you know, ants can lift 50 times their body weight, right? No, I didn't know that. That's well, significant. That's it, amazing. It is. Those little, you ever watch an anthill and watch them scurry about with stuff? Well, how much can bees lift their, of their own body weight? How many times their own body weight? Now, is this like lifting by, with their, by, by flight? Is that what you're talking about? doesn't say. Bob. Oh, okay. All right. So I'd say twice their body weight. Well, if ants can do 50, you think that bees just do ounces? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's uh, wrong. Uh, they can lift almost 300 times their own body that weight. That is amazing. That's uh. That's a lot more than us, Bob. Oh, my goodness. I don't, not times. too many people I know can lift their body weight. <laughs> yeah, let Only alone some... 300 times. Holy cow, that's amazing. Yeah, they, they could fly off with you sometime. <laughs> Time to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment with more on The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. Okay, we're back on the off-ramp. Now, everybody gets into their hobbies during times like this. What about coin collectors? Did you ever collect coins? I did. Yes. For a, a, a young boy, Paul Nicola, in my grade school Oh, class. that's right. You gave him your mom's Indian head. Uh, more than that. What did you give him? All the best coins my mother collected. Oh, my God. I what wanted the... him to come over. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, well, that's there's a story. Yeah. <laughs> that's sad. Gave away your mom's rare coins to a boy that you wanted to come over? Yeah. Did he come over? He did. Did he stay over? Just till he got what he wanted. Of course, yeah. his coins, right? <laughs> he gave me the crappy Indian heads, and I gave him the Liberty heads. And oh, everything. dear. Oh, well, wow. speaking of that, yeah. why is the first Indian head penny misnamed? Because it's not an Indian. That's right. It wasn't the first one. It was in 1859, and the mints engraver, James Longacre, modeled a bust of Liberty wearing a feather bonnet for the one-cent piece. And from the beginning, people took the Liberty head for an Indian head, and they called it the Indian head penny. That's how that whole term really? was born. Yeah. Then later, of course, they did have actual Indian head pennies. I, but I that, wore that for Easter a little. <laughs> a feather? A feather head. The feather head. <laughs> 
Okay. All right. Why would you say that the Brothers Grimm were unfair to women in their fantasies? Well, most of the old books were unfair to women, so it's hard to nail it down. Why, why would you say— I'm trying to think of one Grimm book. Uh, give me an example. I can—you I, know, you want me to give you answers. That doesn't work this way, Marsh. <laughs> so what are the answers? Okay. The sheer number of bad female characters in their stories. In examining 200 fairy tales— They're all evil. They're women. The stories contained 16 wicked mothers or stepmothers— <laughs> Compared to only three wicked fathers or stepfathers. Ah. 16 versus three. And there are 13 young women who kill or endanger the men who love them, but only one man who harms his bride. Those. That you could say they were pretty misogynistic. I, these grim, these brothers well, grim. Hence the name. Grim. They didn't like women that much, apparently. Let me give you a factoid. Okay. All right. It's just so stupid. I had to refer to it. In 1969... An Italian cheese manufacturer was convicted in court of having increased the production of his grated Parmesan cheese, which we buy a lot of, <laughs> by adding to it the ground-up handles of old umbrellas. Oh, what? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Where was that and when was that? 69 in Italy. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you ever said, what's that in my Parmesan? I think that's an umbrella handle, honey. <laughs> No, I don't think so. I'm going to have chicken umbrella tonight. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh. You know, uh, a lot of people are moving to podcasts, streaming radio, streaming music, and so forth. So we all know radio was one of the major mediums of the 20th century, and it was the, the first medium to bring the world into people's homes for free. But with all the other listening alternatives today that I mentioned, the Internet, the podcast, satellite streaming— competing for your ears' attentions, how many Americans does radio reach today, percentage-wise? I'd say 99%. Really? Yeah. Why? Because uh, radio today I can reach, you know, where can it go? Except in some little mountain village, I imagine. It's interesting. You're, you're kind of right. It's <laughs> not 99, uh, but uh, believe it or not, terrestrial radio has done better than terrestrial television mm -hmm. in maintaining its penetration. According to Nielsen, radio still reaches, and this is a figure from March 2020, still reaches 92% of Americans over the age of 18 every day. Hmm. I yeah. thought that was fascinating. Yeah. yeah, Americans listen to an average of one hour and 40 minutes of radio every day. And another surprising statistic, the total number of people reached monthly by radio is still more than Internet search engines, social media sites, e-commerce sites, video sites, news sites, and sports sites. Wow. 244.5 million people every month are reached by radio. It's like they sometimes you say, don't believe the publicity. Yeah. Yeah, the publicity, you think, well, radio's dead. That's gone. You know, No, it's still the most it's popular the medium. One. Yeah, and as an old radio guy, you must really appreciate that I figure. was surprised by that. Yeah. You know, because I have kind of gone to that thinking. It's like, well, it's on its way out. Yeah, you know, apparently no, not. Apparently not. I still turn on the radio all the time. That's right. You do I every do. morning. I know it's that. It's just, uh, you know, company, entertainment, uh, listening in the background, weather, sports, whatever. I want to hear what's going on. I got an interesting thing about, you know, we, the, in the news right now, companies doing all kinds of things uh, that they didn't used to do, uh, making ventilators and uh, personal protection equipment and everything. Yeah. 
There's an interesting story that uh, actually just came out in Fast Company magazine about Nike, that they actually have turned shoe parts into face shields, and they did it in just two weeks' time. Good for them. Yeah. Nike agreed to provide personal protective equipment to the local Oregon Health and Science University, but they'd never built it before. And uh, now, to date, in that short amount of time, they have provided 290,000 pieces of medical protection to more than 20 hospitals across the United States. The uh, vice president of innovation, Michael Donahue, it was almost like Apollo 13, the movie. Mm -hmm. He brought a team together and he dumped dozens of components onto work tables and they started building face mask shields out of the foams, the plastics, the fibers. By lunch, they'd created two dozen working prototypes. Oh, I love it. See, that's that's American ingenuity. It hasn't it is, been around it? for a while. I'm hoping out of this whole rotten mess comes a lot of global improvement and in, you know, in innovation. You know what that story reminds me of? Uh, skunk Works, they were given a... a job to do in a short amount of time, and they exceeded expectations. It was Lockheed developing uh, the, I think it was the Black Hawk, wasn't it? Or uh, one of those early planes. Oh, that's when they developed the first uh, jet plane at the end of the war, World War II, I believe it Lockheed was. Lockheed Martin. Yeah. Yeah, it was Lockheed at the time. They were just given a little weird place to develop it off campus. They uh, call it Skunk Works because yeah, there was a terrible smell came stunk, from it. It stunk, it <laughs> stunk. And uh, they came up with this incredible plane that never existed before. Okay, I have one more factoid, Bob. In 1972, Florida's Capitol building was blacked out for 35 minutes by an electrical power failure. This happened while the state attorney general was holding a press conference Detailing plans to reinstate capital punishment in the electric chair. <laughs> <laughs> and then the lights go out. Yeah. It's like, oh. <laughs> it's like all those movies, they had the, the yeah. lights dim. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Only it went uh, during the press conference. That's serendipity. That is, I love it. That's funny. I'm going to tell you an interesting story, Marcia. So sit back, relax. Defined by who, Bob? <gasps> By me. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, here's the question. Mm-hmm. Remember we did that thing a week or so ago about all the different things that sound like nuts, have a name nut, but they yeah. aren't really nuts? Okay. What do these foods have in common? Avocados, kale, mangoes, zucchinis, dates, nectarines, seedless grapes, cashews, pistachios, and lemons. They all have something in common. Actually, someone in common. Who? Someone? Someone. I have to name a person? Yes. Well, that's absurd. No, it's not absurd. Oh. The question is, who do they have in common, Marcia? Julia Child. No. <laughs> was it a scientist? It was a botanist. Botanist by the name of? Yes. Starts with? Starts with <laughs> D. The thing is, you've never heard of him, and nor has anyone else. Oh, okay? then why ask me? Well, because it's fascinating. I'm going to tell you the story. Sit back, relax, and listen. His name was David Fairchild. And he's the man who introduced all those foods to the United States. So in the late 19th century, David Fairchild was a roving botanist for the Department of Agriculture. Boy, now there's a title for you. Well, here's what they were doing. We'd like to hire you to be our roving botanist. This started when he was in his 20s. He took a series of expeditions three times around the world to 50 countries. And on those trips, at the direction of his bosses... 
He shipped home 4,000 plant varieties that were either new to the United States or improvements to native crops. The government enterprise was plant introduction, and the purpose was to introduce and establish as many of the valuable crops in the world that could be grown here in the United States. And the fruits of his work, pardon the pun, were shared by the Agriculture Department with farmers, with orchardists. It's why we have so many of these things I mentioned. We never had them in this country before. Seedless grapes, for instance. Now, he called himself a food spy, is what he called himself. (laughs) And in many ways he was. He he risked his life for this. He dodged cannibals when he was in Fiji. Good Lord. In Corsica, he was mistaken for a political spy, and he was thrown in jail. But after talking himself out of jail, he hopped on a donkey, and he was heading to a waiting ship. But on the way there, he stopped and snipped four buds from a citron tree. Now, citrons were the progenitors to today's modern oranges, lemons, and grapefruit. And those boosted California's citrus production from 1894 on for 20 years. In the Middle East, he survived an outbreak of the plague aboard his ship. In Chile, he acquired the seed stock for America's first avocados. But it wasn't easy. While he was crossing the Andes, his mule slipped on a patch of ice and they almost fell over a 1,000-foot cliff. I hope this guy got a good performance review. I t- Jeez. <laughs> and two more items. He even improved American beer. While he was buying rounds of beer for Bohemian farmers, he procured some of the finest German hops, which he smuggled out of the country, and that helped with the inferior taste of American beer at well, the turn of the century. Big time, yeah. And then in 1908, he convinced the mayor of Tokyo to give him the Japanese cherry trees, which became the rootstock of all those cherry trees in Washington, D.C. Yeah, yeah. Remember, it was uh, in our backyard at our last house. So he gave you many of the great tastes you have in American cuisine. But what was the bad thing that came out of all of this? Sauerkraut. Well, not sauerkraut. (laughs) Unfortunately, by introducing foreign plants to America, he also introduced foreign pests who hitchhiked on the shipments. And by 1912, half the insect pests in the country were foreign pests, Uh. including coddling moths, asparagus beetles, gypsy moths, and boll weevils. So when that happened, Congress passed the Plant Quarantine Act, and that was the end of David Fairchild's food adventures. But look what he... What he got for us, avocados, kale, mangoes, zucchinis, dates, nectarines, seedless grapes, cashews, pistachios, and lemons. Thank you, David Fairchild, for putting those in our supermarket. Yeah, that was, well, it's very, uh, a lot of foresight to send him out doing that. But then where they fell short was thinking what it could bring back with them. Otherwise, they could have been all purified. The unintended consequences of that. Correct, but that's fascinating. What What a job, what a great job. That was a great story. Apparently, there's a new book, The Food Explorer, by Daniel Drone, published by Dutton. It's a brand new book. Sounds very interesting. Okay, what what world's record did Alexander Graham Bell break in 1919? Okay, well, he ate more pies than anybody else. No, <laughs> no, no. Had nothing to do with communication. Okay, or diet pies. for that matter. In 1919, when he was 72, his hydrofoil boat set a world's water speed record, 70 miles per hour across really? the water. Well, yeah. That's- Interesting. Yeah. And he hydrofoil. He also formed the uh, National Geographic Society and yeah, founded National it. Geographic. See, magazine. he was like Ben Franklin, a Renaissance guy. He was a Renaissance guy. All right. I got one more airplane question. Who was the first person ever interviewed on an airplane? Well, I bet it was a president. No. Okay. Uh, a Hollywood it, star. It was a movie director. Okay. Movie director, Otto Preminger. No. 
Who? Cecil B. DeMille. Ah. He was interviewed on an airplane in 1917 after his uh, first spectacular Joan the Woman was released. Joan the Woman. Just think about that. That's only 15 years, 14 years after the Wright brothers, and somebody's already up in the airplane with a reporter being interviewed. Interesting. Well, that's it for our eighth week of, well, let's call it stir-crazy trivia. Okay. Okay. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Hope you join us again next time we come back here on The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.